0: Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I recently spoke with Laura Lees and we dove into her cybersecurity journey, where she started to where she is now. We discussed her area of expertise, which is governance. We covered a variety of topics including security frameworks, her opinions on these, and her beliefs on where companies need to be focusing on when it comes to governance and frameworks. If you'd like to know more about Laura's experience, then please keep on listening. Miss Laura Lees. Now, you've been someone on my target list that I've wanted to talk to, not only because we are friends, but also because you are someone who's been in the industry for a long time. So I think you'd be able to showcase a lot of your experience. But before we dive into your professional experience, we like to always start off our podcast talking about you and your journey. So let's talk about how you got into security and the path to where you are now showing my age now, talking about how long I've been in industry. Thanks, Carissa, I, I appreciate it. I, it. I didn't
1: mean
0: it like <laughs> oh good, that. It's, you know oh, good, oh,
1: good, I know, no, that's okay. I'm at that point in my life, I'm starting to get comfortable with my age. And as, as you said, with age comes a lot of experience. So hopefully that comes through, in particularly in today's podcast. Well, basically, if we go back to when I was a teenager, um, and you know how you always need to do work experience at school, I actually went and did some auditing, and I always um, enjoyed figuring out how things work. I mean, when I As a kid, I even pulled apart my Mickey Mouse watch to see how it worked. And originally, I wanted to be an accountant, but then I actually sort of fell into working with computers because of changing school and didn't um, have other subject so I was like the default subject let's go to computers found I had an affinity with them and it sort of went from there but I actually originally started out in help desk then I eventually became a systems engineer and then I actually have to thank one of my um, previous bosses he um, decided that the company I was working with needed to start up a security department or at least initiate doing some security stuff and I sort of managed to get the role, Um, became their first data security administrator, needed to actually um, became the first dedicated team member for security. And that was over 15 years ago and basically needed to establish an entire security program. So that sort of went from establishing policies and standards. So that's where it really started out in that governance piece. And then sort of, yeah, did everything from security awareness and general security administrator. And then I've sort of had a journey, various different roles along the way, being a security consultant, being a security architect, being a business information security officer. So trying to get the business and, and security to talk the same language, which is always fun, um, particularly when you get the real techie um, security people and then you get the business people that just want to do their own thing. That's, mm-hmm. that's always a challenge. That's part of why I ended up doing my MBA and that sort of helped me along the way. Um, and then I've just... Um, been very active in the industry, as you know. I've been a volunteer now with the Australian Information Security Association for over 12 years, um, and I really enjoy giving back to the industry. And as you know, I'm also now the current treasurer for Osaka's Sydney chapter, and I'm also on the Fair Institute, which is sort of another interest of mine is sort of doing quantitative analysis of risk, so information risk. So that's um, something else that I sort of started recently. I'm on the Fair Institute Sydney chapters committee.
0: I have to and ask: then, yeah. Are you glad you took up IT slash security versus being an accountant? Oh hell yeah! I think I'd, <laughs>
1: uh, you know
0: me, Carissa. I think I'd be as boring as batshit. Or sort, of, or maybe even rocking the industry as far as audits concerned. But yeah, I can't see myself being one. Well, I don't think we've got anyone who's an accountant listening to this podcast. And if if we do, then we're not offending them. We're just we're just. Uh, oh no 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 no. I calling just, it out. I just think if they're, if they're an accountant and they're wanting to do something different, security,
1: because we, we actually have, as you know, um, but there's not enough of us in the industry. Um, there's Not that I agree that there's a skills shortage. I think there's a skills mismatch, which is where having
0: people that have had accounting backgrounds, is a great foray into coming into the industry. Well, any accountants out there, if you're looking for a new career, dive on in. But let's jump into governance. Now, This is probably one of the areas where most people don't particularly like. It's not a very sexy area and it's not the most exciting topic for some people, but it's highly important. So can you, Laura, talk around some core requirements for building out a NIST ISO framework and your approach to doing this? Okay, so I think it's really important actually, um, yeah, you
1: you sort of mentioned some really key framework there. So ISO is ISO twenty seven thousand and one series is probably the best place to start. I mean it's actually a globally recognized standard. It's something that people can actually get themselves certified. So it's about establishing an information security management system, Um, and that's really about setting up your policies and standards and procedures and so forth. NIST is the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, and they have actually established and and published a cybersecurity framework, and that's a really great framework to assess one's maturity against. Uh, And they've obviously got other standards like 853, which actually set up controls and so forth. But ISO is really about sort of going back to even setting up your information security principles. So I think that's really where you um, need to start when you're looking at a governance framework and setting up governance, information security governance is really establishing what it is that you're trying to achieve within the organisation and ensuring those principles are actually sound. So there's different levels of principles. So there's management principles and then there's also further down the framework is sort of delving into the application security and application development security principles and things of that sort of nature. But it's really about setting what are you trying to achieve high-level information security policy. Um, And that's sort of really high-level directive statements. It's not getting into the specifics. And then from there, you sort of can go down into your standards and then your guidelines and procedures. And as you, I like to look at it a bit like a pyramid or a triangle, depending upon which way you, if you want to look at it from a 3D perspective or not. But it's sort of starting from those principles, delving down to the policies. And then as you get down further into the detail, you actually become a bit more specific, but then you also become broader and get into the, the nitty gritty detail and help people make those decisions as you go along the place.
0: Now, there was someone recently on my podcast we spoke about NIST framework. And I think he was sort of saying that people feel very confused. It's quite convoluted. It's quite long. What would be your high-level advice yeah. to someone that feels a little bit apprehensive only because it's long, comprehensive, and perhaps they may or may not be bothered, but it's what they have to do? Can you just give some high-level viewpoints on what would sort of help someone get going with this straight away?
1: So if they're completely new to it, the first thing I'd probably suggest is because we have – such a great network. I'm not too sure what the network's outside of Australia too much, but we have a great security um, professional network. I mean, there's there's obviously Acer and, and ISACA and even AWSN and, and, and Cyber risk and even the events that you attend as well, Carissa. There's quite a lot of people out there that have a lot of experience mm. um, and so it's, it's always good to reach out to others and rather than reinventing the wheel, find out that what they did. But a good way to start is there's actually a spreadsheet that I'm pretty sure that NIST has actually developed sort of detailed the subcategories and the specifics around NIST um, and sort of they're they're pretty high level statements and it's really about going along and and going, okay, do we have these things in place? That's probably the first step is if you don't, then that's something that you need to look at. Okay, why don't we, what can we do to put them in place? Is it actually something that we we need to be concerned about within our organisation? Because obviously different organisations have different levels and requirements when it comes to security. So certainly somebody like in a critical infrastructure or, or, or critical industry like banking and finance or utilities will obviously have a higher requirement in relation to security and their risk appetite will be potentially lower. And so that'll actually drive some of the importance around some of those specifics mm-hmm. um, this is something to measure maturity against. I think it's really sort of taking it a step back, looking at ISO as a sort of a bit more prescriptive sort of directive framework to leverage upon and actually sort of step back and go, okay, well, what components do we need? What do we need to set up? How do we actually want to approach stuff? What's also going out and finding out what people are doing as far as best practice in relation to those components? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's up to a million places you can go, like web resources and so forth, that you can read. And I mean reality is if you if you're completely new to this, I would suggest reading, just read what's whatever's on the internet, and but I mean obviously make sure it's a reputable source. Talk to people in the industry and get their feedback and advice. and if you are able to afford to within an organisation, sometimes it helps just getting in a consultant that's done this before elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, to help you with, at least with the initial steps. Um, I know that when I started out, as I said, 15 years ago or more, we actually did have a third party come in and actually help us with setting up the basics. It helps to then build upon, but I understand that not every organisation is in a position to do that. So, yeah, if it's a case of you don't have that ability, yeah, go Read as much as you can. Um, there's quite a lot of people writing books these days. It sort of gives some really sound advice um, that have been there, done that. And also, as I said, attend events, professional development uh, sessions. There's meetups. There's so many out there um, and people are willing to share. mm
0: mm-hmm. Okay, well, that really leads me into my next point. In your experience, do you believe organizations are falling behind when it comes to governments due to the work that's involved initially setting up this process, but also the maintenance that's required to do this ongoing? I think it's not so much about the setting up yeah. So certainly there's a a lot of effort in setting it up if you haven't done so
1: before. But um, I think it's more a maturity perspective across the organization. So typically security people get it. It's trying to educate the executives, but even more so than that, the end user and the people that are actually doing the work. Uh, So being frontline staff or developers, people that are actually going to potentially cause impact if they do things wrong. I think that's where security education and awareness and getting people on board in relation to the journey that the organization needs to go on to uplift their cybersecurity maturity. I think that's where the importance comes into play and needs to have that focus. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So, in terms yes. of managing governance teams and things like that, how would you strategically approach this in terms of we've got to make sure that everyone's doing the right thing? What would be some advice that you could provide in terms of managing that from a strategic point of view? I think you
1: need to look at where are your biggest pain points. So, for example, um, if you are doing a lot of development in house, within your organization or even using a material outsource provider to do your development. I think that's uh, certainly a key area that you need to ensure that they've got the maturity and skills and expertise and that they're following your secure software development lifecycle policy and standards and and processes and um, that they're engaging the security team along the way uh, so that they're not unknowingly coding in vulnerabilities. The program managers and project managers, getting them to understand what needs to be done when doing projects, not just security projects, but more even business projects, and understanding where there may be risks and helping them to identify and become aware of the types of risks that they could be introducing or they need to look to mitigate. And then also, as I said, like if you've got frontline staff that deal with clients. It's really dependent upon the organization that you work in and what sort of activities they do. But if you do have frontline staff that are dealing with clients or customers, obviously, they're going to be dealing with at times PII, so personal information, or even potentially financial information if they're dealing with credit cards and so forth. Um, And just educating them as to their responsibilities and how they could potentially impact the organization if they do do something wrong. And I think one of the The key factors, regardless of who you're talking to, is actually making it personal and how it can impact them personally. If you put them in the shoes of the user or the end consumer, I should say, how would they feel if it was their information that was being potentially mishandled?
0: Do you think when you said following governance frameworks, like even that statement alone is probably very deterrent to certain people, what's your experience to ensuring that people are continuously following a framework and when they drop off, putting them back on track again, People don't necessarily like being told what to do, especially by security people. What would be some of your advice that you could provide in terms of trying to get people to follow frameworks without getting them upset and ensuring that security people aren't sort of stepping on their toes too much to the point where they feel undermined?
1: I think that sort of comes back down to seeing them as a stakeholder in relation to the governance framework too. If you are establishing or even if you're updating, get their input. Treating them like SMEs in relation to the space in which they work. So, if we sort of just go back to the developers, for example, they're going to have a lot more understanding in relation to how they do do development on a day to day basis, and Mm -hmm. some of the challenges they face. And they're going to have potentially better SME knowledge in some areas than some of these security people. So, it's it's about building a relationship, working together rather than against each other. And I think it's also, as I said, it's about explaining where you're coming from so that they understand things. And sometimes you may need to reiterate something in a number of different ways until they get it. And, yeah, sometimes you do have to to push back. Um, in some situations, they're just trying to push boundaries because they're just trying to do it the easiest way possible. Yeah. I understand that. But, mm-hmm. but it, the flip side to that is reality is, as security professionals, should be trying to make things easier for people. Being in the industry for as long as I've been, it's quite concerning that we do still have some of the same issues cropping up. It's trying to make it so security is convenient. And I know in, in some circumstances where actually security is convenient. Oh, yeah, yes, make security convenient. So, like I know, for example, um, with some organisations, they are doing that with regards to CI, CD. So, continuous um, improvement, continuous delivery. If you build the security, security tools into the process, it just becomes... Automatic. Part of the... Yeah, it becomes automatic. It's sort of like... So if, you're, if you've are you got things automatically doing code scanning, code review, and also if you have components that sort of just slot in and they don't have to think about it, and it becomes convenient, it becomes a non-issue, um, we just need to get smarter at doing that more regularly and more frequently and trying to make it easier for them. Another way in... Sort of a similar light. It's something I was talking about recently with some people about make it less painful to do security well. So um, a way to do that potentially may be where they actually get penalised if they don't do security. So, so for example, if you were implementing a particular control, there may be a chargeback for that control because obviously it costs money to operate that control. But you may charge them more for not implementing that control. So it becomes like a competition then. Yeah, yeah. Well, and gamification is a perfect, perfect example on how to make security more fun. So using things like, and I apologize if I'm doing a bit of a plug here, but I I am a big fan of things like Secure Code Warrior, um, which is an Australian startup, as Uh, you probably well know. Um, And I think the way that they've gone about training developers to code securely and become better trained and educated, it becomes second nature for them to do secure coding and the gamification aspects of that, I think that makes security fun. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's what we should be doing as an industry is trying to make security fun for people. Um, another great example is doing the phishing simulations and campaigns is sort of rewarding people for reporting phishing. It becomes fun. It becomes a bit of a competition. It's sort of something that they go, oh, is this a phishing email? If I report it, will I get a prize? Um,
0: I've yeah. never got a prize ever in my life. I would have preferred that, to be honest, when I was doing my security awareness trainings. So yeah, uh, we well, um, should start implementing that. Example. I would have been straight up for well, well, if that was the case, there's
1: another another Australian security startup that started doing some security awareness training without a computer. So, no mm-hmm. PowerPoint, no computers. Um, and again, gamifying and, and sort of making it interactive, having it a bit different. Yeah, I think for way too long, we've, like you said, we had to be the police. And reality is, we, sh- we shouldn't <laughs> be the police. We should be helping people along the way.
0: I spoke to a on our podcast a few weeks ago, and I love the way he positioned it. He said, security is there to service the business, not to practice security. And I really love that sentiment yeah. because in my experience working with in security teams myself, we had been viewed like that. And as soon as they knew you was a security person in the room, everyone kind of got their backs up, uh, probably because yeah. there were people going around acting like the police and that was never my intent. And it was sort of how do we put out an olive branch to be like, we're not the police, we're here to help you. But again, it does come back to effective frameworks, strong leadership at the top to be able to drive that down as well in terms of how we do communicate to other people outside of the security division and in part to the business yeah. uh, and not undermining people for not knowing something because again, uh, it's not their job and they're probably very unlikely to know some security at an extreme level of detail.
1: I'm just going to pull you up there on the not their job part, but that's okay. Reality is, ultimately everybody should be responsible for
0: security um that's my sort of way but we need to help enable them 100% what i mean by that is oh. they aren't they're not practicing in that field i have no idea about accounting and i'm not going to try to uh, pretend i know anything about that it's not my space and it's more coming from the angle okay. on putting people down because they didn't know something because how potentially oh. could someone know if they're not practicing it without the appropriate training
1: Oh, agreed. Completely agree with you there. Um, and so, so for example, like it's about enabling people and, uh, supporting them and training them and empowering them by giving them the tools and knowledge so that they can make calls as far as security. There just isn't enough people in the industry to to everything that needs to be done. And so we need to engage others to assist us. So yes, while you said you're not an accountant, you probably still need to make sure you balance your own checkbook, right?
0: I think the operative word there is empowering. So in my experience, um, and speaking to other people as well, you're not in security and then I feel that there's this language, this behaviour that goes on like, well, you're stupid because you didn't do it type of thing. And that I think that's the right word and that's what I've seen time and time again of people not doing the right thing. And, yes, admittedly it is everyone's responsibility, but then it also falls back on the onus of the security division to ensure that people are understanding what the ramifications are if something were to go wrong or yeah. someone does get compromised. But I think, again, it comes back to that language, how are we talking to people? By undermining people and trying yeah. to point out they're a delinquent, is it really solving the problem? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. That's for sure. Um, yeah, I think, as you said, it's it's about servicing the business. And I think that's where the service element about education and empowerment and imparting our knowledge and experience to ensure that the people that we're working with have that understanding. So one of the things that I typically try to do when I'm explaining why I don't support something is uh, explain what the ramifications are of actually proceeding down that path. And I Sort of try and look at it from the perspective of imparting the knowledge to the person in question that has the power to make the decision so that they are able to make an informed decision. So, mm. if they want to accept the risk, at least they're accepting a the risk that they understand as opposed to just going forward and not understanding what mm. the risk is. I've and, 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 and seen that before.
0: <laughs> are you sure you know about this risk?
1: Yes. I don't think that's correct. A good way of doing that is actually asking them to articulate the risk back to you. Um, Or generally it's, I'm too senior,
0: I'm too busy, got to go, hangs up. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah, that does does happen. That does happen. And, (laughs) and, I mean, in those circumstances, sometimes you just have to cut your losses and go, well, I tried. Um, They've accepted the risk. They've not understood the risk, but it's their head that's on the the block. And in some of those times, you just have to cover your own ass.
0: (laughs) But no, well, it's, I, it's, try,
1: it's, so. I do. I do. Yeah, no, I understand, and I, I mean, I do do try, and and one of the key things, particularly with senior executives, is all in the language. Some people um, may see the way that somebody is talking to them as being condescending, as you said, like um, right. earlier about trying to try to make sure they don't feel like they're an idiot. Um, And it is about changing the way and the tone and sort of trying to put it into the language that they understand. Um, And that's where I suppose looking at things from a a quantitative perspective actually I think is going to help going forward. And that's why I'm quite passionate about trying to um, look at, information risk from a quantitative perspective um, and actually putting a dollar value on it because business people are more likely to understand dollars and cents than they are. Um, right. Oh, yeah, this means that you could compromise your entire customer database. And it's like, yeah, well, what does that mean? Like, so I don't care. Um, exactly. Whereas if you go, well, if you if you actually go down this path and this particular risk comes to pass, and actually, you do end up with a compromised database and your, your entire customer database ends up on the public domain. It would cost the organization X million or X billion dollars. Is that a risk that you're willing to accept? And often when you do talk to them in that sort of sense, they go, oh oh, no, no, that's not something that I can accept. So it changes the language. It changes the, the way that they look at it and then it's a little easier for them to understand. And mm-hmm. I think that we as an industry need to get better at, at talking mm-hmm. in business language part of the reason I went down the path of doing my MBA to get that business understanding. Um, uh-huh. So I think it's it's something important for particularly where you actually do have people that need to talk back into the business and the uh, decision makers as far as accepting risk or not to have more of that knowledge and, uh-huh. and um, language. I mean, certainly you still need to have the, the super techies because who's going to try and hack the systems or who's going to actually be able to detect when there is an incident. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you it's trying to find that balance across the team and making sure that the right people are the ones actually also having those conversations with the people that make decisions as far as risk is concerned.
0: Why do you think people are condescending? In relation to talking to, to executives, business? or again to the other parts of the business, like oh well, you're dumb. You clicked on that link, haha. Like, why do you think people are like that? Uh, I think it's an ego thing, right? I mean, it's human nature, right, to sort of like
1: try and outdo the next person. I mean, it's not just a it's not just somebody in security. If some people would just want to prove that they know more than the next person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where it does it does take a bit of patience to, to talk to people. And and the other thing as well, it doesn't help if the people you're talking to are actually being condescending to you because it's going to automatically get you arcing up. Uh, <laughs> so sometimes we just have to swallow our pride and go, yep, okay, they, they think they're the bee's knees. We'll just um, try and find a different way of communicating with them. And it's, I think, well, myself personally, I find it more rewarding to actually get them to understand where you're coming from when you've started the conversation and they have absolutely no idea and they are being going, oh, you're just security. You're just trying to tell me I can't do what I want to do. Um, and I find it more rewarding to get them to understand than to be condescending to them.
0: hmm I think the other thing is, from my perspective, if you want to get an outcome from someone, the best way is probably not to condescend them. So if you're trying to sell, hey, Mr. Executive, I need $300 to do X, condescending them is not going to get you an outcome. It's going to annoy them. So I think people need to think about it and reverse engineer the whole problem. If I educate them, talk to them nicely, and actually give them the facts and the figures that they need to make a calculative decision – It's not by by throwing them under the bus or being condescending.
1: The the other thing is as well, if you actually work with them uh, rather than against them, they're actually going to become more likely to want to work with you. They're going Mm to be more likely to listen to you. Long-term, they're actually going to come to you less because they actually understand it more. Mm -hmm. And actually long-term means that it creates less work for you in relation to talking to them, that you can actually get on to do more Within your day to day, which I know everybody is working ridiculous hours to try and get through everything and they're still not getting through everything. So sometimes you need to just take that step back, have that conversation, and longer term, both of you are going to benefit, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move forward and start focusing on some areas that perhaps need continuous uh, improvement when it comes to governance. Where are some focal areas that you believe are sort of missed that people should be focusing on in your experience?
1: Where a lot of organisations, well, certainly in my experience anyway, um, sort of falter is not necessarily in setting up the policies and standards, but disseminating and um, getting that um, understanding and knowledge throughout the rest of the organisation. So, sort of going back to education and awareness. So, most people might know that there's an information security policy out there, but very few people have actually read it. (laughs) Um, I'd be impressed if everyone had read it. I would be too, but it's about trying to make it simple. So that's where it really comes down to the way you go about educating people in relation to what's in the policy. So again, try not to be condescending, sort of making it relevant to them as to, I think one of the big key things is making it relevant to them in their day-to-day lives, not just in their work life. So, for example, why it's important to have two-factor authentication on your Gmail account or your Facebook or your Twitter or your Instagram or whatever other social media or or, um, email you might have um, as to why that's important and how that can benefit them in the long run from a personal perspective. And them getting that understanding in their day-to-day actually means that they'll actually be more cognizant when it comes to their work life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And particularly um, another really great way of educating people as to why security is important is particularly if they have kids and teenagers um, that are getting onto the internet and and the dangers uh, ensue there through cyberbullying and um, sort of coaxed into clicking on emails um, Mm -hmm. that then completely render their system useless or or whatever the case may be. Again, making it personal, I think um, there was a presentation I, I actually helped facilitate a couple of months back, which was through um, one of the guys from the safety commissioner's office. And he was talking about he's the size of his own home. And I think that's something that we need to sort of get people to think about that they're responsible for security of their own home.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not even just from a cyber perspective. I mean, people will make sure that they put locks on their windows and doors. It's sort of trying to get them to understand the correlation between doing that in their home and doing it on their cyber life.
0: So you're sort of thinking from a behavioral point of view, doing this at home, practicing this at home, but then sort of permeate more into their corporate life because it almost becomes instinctual then.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've been known to to get on soapboxes with people that ring me to try and verify who I am for different services that I subscribe to. I'm mm-hmm. going, hold on a second. You're the one that rang me. How do I know you are who you say you are? I'm yeah, not getting out my information. And I then try and educate them as to why they shouldn't do that and that how Mm -hmm. giving that information over the phone can be used for identity theft, how that could impact somebody's life. So Mm -hmm. you give out all those details to somebody you haven't verified who they are. That Mm -hmm. could then mean that, you end up with loans in your name. There goes your credit history. If you then go to get a credit card or or a home loan or or anything of that sort of day, or even potentially a, a new mobile phone, you could get knocked back because it's almost near impossible to regain your your identity if it gets stolen. When when I actually have those conversations, I've, I've been quite pleased to sort of have some people go, Oh, didn't realise. Oh, thank you. That's actually really good. And mm-hmm. but by the same token, I also try and help whichever company it is or organization that's contacted me, come up with processes that they can use to help to verify themselves. So, for example, if they're ringing back in relation to an issue that I've called about, in the first instance, give me a reference number. So, when they Mm -hmm. ring back, they go, I'm ringing in relation to this particular reference number. Okay, yep, I do know, I I do trust who you you are. Or even giving a call and saying, oh, please use this reference number, call us back on the number that's published on our internet site. Mm Mm-hmm. Simple things like that just to, just to get that verification and build that trust. I think trust is a big thing.
0: So what do you believe is in store for the future of security governance? I think
1: there's um, certainly a lot more regulation that's coming out, which is mm-hmm. instilling a higher reliance on ensuring that governance is being performed properly and mm-hmm. and that there are good governance frameworks that are actually operating effectively. I think that's going to, to push a lot of organizations into looking at the effectiveness of their governance and also going to be probably one of the big key factors to distinguish organisations as to their competitors. So if they're actually operating effectively from a governance perspective, um, it means that it's going to help them with regards to incident response and recovery if they do have any incidents which will actually distinguish them from somebody who, who operates poor governance. So it's going to become a competitive advantage, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. And so off the back of that, do you feel confident as a practitioner that what we are doing today will set us up as an industry for the future? As
1: I said, I think there's areas for
0: improvement and I think education and awareness is probably one of the big key factors
1: there and working with each other um, and empowering empowering the rest of the organisation. So I think empowering people to operate security themselves without having to come down um, hard or being that policeman I think is, is probably key to, to uh, achieving that success.
0: Okay, Laura. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Uh, I love some oh, of, of your course. tangents you went on. I think we do see a lot of eye a lot of things. I've uh, experienced similar similar behaviors in the industry as well. So that was always really good to get your understanding of it. So I really appreciate mm. you taking the time. If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Well, I am on
1: LinkedIn. I do have this little key thing though is that I do like people to send me a message if they are trying to connect just because Mm -hmm. um, I get a lot of connection requests and being a security person, I do wear a tinfoil hat. But if they are Sydney-based, also come to any um, ISACA events and I'm often at the Acer events as well. Also, obviously, um, if there's an AWSN event, if I'm able to attend, I will. uh, Fair Institute events. So, I'm very active, as I said, in the industry. So, you can come and talk to me at one of the events if you happen to be there Um, but yeah happy to chat and impart knowledge wherever i can
0: awesome okay well thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it you're welcome i do appreciate you reaching out to me and i'm very honored to be part of your podcast and yeah hope to catch up soon thanks for tuning in as always we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode and remember you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.